1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is David Fauser. Today, I'm joined by Venus Bivar, Assistant Professor of History at Washington University in St. Louis. She's the author of Organic Resistance, the Struggle Over Industrial Farming in Post-War France from UNC Press. And she's here to discuss this work with us. Uh, Professor Bivar, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Wonderful. So uh, what I'd like to do is start out with um, some of the prehistory of of French agriculture here, or or at least the prehistory of French agriculture as it relates to this book. So if you could maybe introduce us to the argument of the of the overall piece by starting with maybe French agriculture in the 19th century and then getting us up to about the Second World War.
0: Okay, Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter of my book, but uh, I don't really get into it in any detail. Uh, Over the course of the 19th century, French agricultural landholding gets increasingly parceled so that more people are owning smaller amounts of land. And this becomes incredibly inefficient. Uh, It also means that farmers are not making very much money, and when in the late 19th century other agricultural countries begin exporting their products, and in particular, I'm referring to the United States here, countries around the world have two options really. One, they can overhaul their own production processes in order to compete with the United States. Uh, or they can give up and begin importing American goods and become net importers of agricultural goods more broadly. That's the route that Great Britain takes. Other countries in Europe decide to compete with the United States. So Denmark, the Netherlands, they overhaul their agriculture in the 19th century, late 19th century, uh, in order to remain competitive on this increasingly global market in foodstuffs. And The French decide instead to hide behind tariff walls. And what this does is it allows French agriculture to remain, for lack of a better word, backward uh, compared to, say, the Danes or the Dutch or the Americans. And um, the French do this largely because the 19th century is incredibly volatile politically There are, of course, several revolutions that happened between 1789 and 1871. And the peasantry is really looked upon as a stabilizing force. And the idea is that if these peasants are protected with these tariffs, that they'll remain loyal to the government and that France will avoid having yet another major political social revolution. And so that's the decision that France makes. And the upshot is that through the first decades of the 20th century, French agriculture increasingly falls behind the agricultural sectors of its European neighbors, except maybe Italy or Spain, Um, but certainly they fall behind Germany, Denmark, the Netherlands, even Great Britain in some respects, the United States certainly. Uh, and, and so my book begins at the end of the Second World War when the French government decides definitively that it's going to do something about this. There had been discussions earlier in the 1930s, but those get interrupted by economic depression and the Second World War. So really it's not until 1945 that the French decide that they're going to abandon this old tariff system and try to modernize the French agricultural sector so that it can compete with these other countries that had already uh, modernized uh, in the decades leading up to the the middle of the 20th century.
1: And so this leads to two questions for me. One is when we talk about competition, we're talking about uh, basically domestic consumers in these European nations, say, Uh, Say, you know, French people living in cities, uh, German people living in German cities or or British people in British cities, as well as uh, export markets more globally. So there's kind of two dimensions of competition. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yeah. And the big product here is wheat. So the United States is exporting a lot of wheat at the end of the 19th century, as is Argentina, for instance. And wheat, of course, is a staple in the european and north american diet uh, and so it's 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 really about wheat people aren't exporting carrots or cookies really um, mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th century um, but because wheat is such fundamentally important part of any uh food market in this period um the simple decision of the united states to export so much wheat causes massive ripple effects in all kinds of food markets
1: around the world. And then when we conceptualize the problem and we say that French farmers are not competitive, what precisely do we mean by that? Is it simply a matter of prices or are French farms not profitable enough? Or or, how how do we understand this problem?
0: It's, so French Farmers are not operating at scale yet, for the most part. There are, of course, massive regional differences. And I'm just going to make a blanket apology up front at the beginning of this interview and say that when I talk about French farming, uh, that's a gross overgeneralization. But uh, there are a couple of places, particularly in the Northeast and around Paris, where farmers are, in fact, producing on large scales, where they have uh, you know, fairly well-organized massive wheat fields that they can uh, harvest uh, with the kinds of mechanical options that are available in the beginning of the 20th century. But most French farmers own tiny amounts of land. I forget the exact number. It's in the book, but something like the average French farm is something like, let's say 12 different parcels spaced out over the entirety of a county And each of those parcels might not be any bigger than a third of an acre. And so you can't really profitably grow anything for a market in that system because you're expending so much labor moving from parcel to parcel. You can't really use any of these mechanical innovations because your plot of land isn't actually big enough. Uh, And so these French farmers are really just producing for themselves. They might be taking produce to a local market, maybe even a regional market, but certainly not even a domestic market for most of these farmers at the beginning of the 20th century.
1: And, and so another sort of uh, symptom or aspect of this is the really high level of the French workforce that is in agriculture. And I believe it's something like a third.
0: Yes, it's a third still at the second, at the end of the Second World War.
1: Which seems, which seems just unbelievable, given that the British level is, what something like five and a half percent, and the United States is like 15 or, or something like that. So, so what we have then is a French agricultural sector that has very small parcels that are spread out all over the place. The, the farms themselves are basically small, and they're labor intensive because you have a lot of people working on these. And so the, so the post-war French government then really sees this as a problem. And, and how do they try to solve this problem? Or, or sorry, before we get to how they try to solve it, uh, w- what is their goal here? What do you think their long-term idea is?
0: Well, they see it as both a problem and an opportunity. So at the end of the Second World War... Uh, agriculture is in a state of disarray as are most sectors in France after the German occupation and uh, the last month of fighting. And there are a number of discussions going on inside the French government uh, in 1944. And one of them is about economics and how France is going to recover from the war. And And really, you know, there had been thinking about this under the occupation, um, thinking about what sectors of the French economy uh, might be um, most amenable to turning into profitable sectors where France could earn foreign exchange on a global market in order to buy other goods that France needs. And at the end of the Second World War, there's... One French uh, politician in particular named Pierre Flimlin, who, and I'm sure I'm butchering his pronunciation of his last name. Um, he is later the minister of agriculture. He holds a number of different administrative posts in the post-war period, and he suggests that French agriculture could, in fact, be completely turned around and not only brought up to speed domestically, but that it could be turned into a sector that earns. France currency on international markets to improve the balance of payments um, level, which is suffering pretty badly at the end of the second World War, given that France had borrowed so much to survive the occupation. And um, he puts forward this idea that that we can we can do this with the French agricultural sector, and that the best way to do that is to create some kind of integrated market for agricultural goods within Europe. So immediately the idea that French agriculture could be modernized, a B turned into, um, a foreign exchange, uh, uh, currency, uh, winner, uh, and c European integration. Those three things are, are stuck together from the very beginning.
1: And they integrate as well. What seemed to be the two major sort of geopolitical, uh, kind of realities that France in the postwar period is dealing with, which is the sort of dominance of the United States on the one hand and the, uh, its position with respect to Western Europe on the other. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. And France is feeling, what's the right word for this? Um, humiliated, I guess is the right word after having been occupied by the Germans, bailed out by the Americans, um, There's a pretty decent literature on this in 20th century French historiography about French efforts to recapture a sense of grandeur. That's the word that uh, Charles de Gaulle used uh, in the post-war period. And, And agriculture becomes a part of this larger story about French attempts to recapture its political and economic importance. So in some ways, I see my work in parallel with the work of, say, Gabriel Heft, who has written about the history of nuclear power in this respect, in, mm-hmm. in the sense that France is trying to regain its importance in some kind of way.
1: Trying to build a kind of new, uh, almost like a revitalized modernity around uh, the technological application you know sort of, uh, the application of technology to, to productivity, is that, is that fair to say?
0: Yes, absolutely. Productivity is an obsession for the French after the Second World War. And in fact, I would say that obsession starts in the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, Renault, who is in charge of the, the car manufacturing business, uh, he begins thinking seriously about productivity, visits the United States in the 10s and the 20s. So these ideas are there, they just keep on getting interrupted by World War and economic depression. So it's not really until the late 1940s that people are, are able to follow through with a lot of the stuff that had been germinating for a couple of decades already. And I should add as well that um, in thinking about why agriculture gets gets so much attention uh, in, in terms of modernizing the economy is that there's a prevailing belief, and there still is in 2018, that a modern economy is an economy that is grounded in the service sector and in manufacturing and any economy that is grounded in agriculture is necessarily pre-modern, backward, non-competitive, not modern. And so the French are determined to move that workforce out of the countryside and into factories, into banks, into uh, retail, into all kinds of service sector type positions in order to build an economy that looks like the ideal of a modern economy, something that the United States already had, you know, the British already had other parts of Western Europe had begun to build.
1: So what we have then is, is really a kind of, um, I mean, an, an epochal kind of confrontation in French society, French politics, the French environment, between uh, a kind of model of agriculture that had been developed and supported for political expediency in preceding decades, but that now seemed uh, at odds with a kind of capital M modernization program. And so what is it that the French government really wants to do? They want to get workers out of the farms and into cities, right? Which means that the farms themselves must be made more efficient, especially in terms of labor. Is that is that a fair way to summarize it? Absolutely, absolutely yes. And so what does this look like on the ground? How, how does the French government actually go about doing this?
0: Right, so there are lots of policy measures that get introduced. Um, where to begin? So over the course of the 1950s, late 1940s, these policy measures are fairly ad hoc. The French government until 1958 is pretty unstable, um, although perhaps not as unstable as some of the historiography ha- has suggested. And so in these early uh, this, in these early years, the French government introduces a form of land redistribution called Rémont that I talk about extensively in the book. And according to this system, a particular county can ask the government to redraw the map, uh, property holding map of this county with the help of a government appointed surveyor. And the goal there is to move away from the system in which farmers own discrete parcels of land all over the county to a system in which their their holdings are consolidated, which will make it easier to farm their land with machinery and with chemical inputs. And so this happens throughout the post-war period. It's in fact an old process that that predates the French Revolution, uh, but isn't really applied with any kind of serious, um, on a serious scale, really, until the 1950s. And...
1: It was largely voluntary before, Is is that correct?
0: Yes. And it remains voluntary in a sense, in that it's somebody from the county making the request to the government to have this process uh, executed. It's involuntary in the sense that um, as of the 1950s, after a few changes to the law, you only need a simple majority within the county for the process to proceed. So let's say you have 200 landholders in this county and they put the Ramon case to a vote, as long as you have 101 voting in favor, the process will go through, which means you've got 99 pretty angry property holders whose land is being redistributed against their will. And it becomes something of a bureaucratic nightmare for the state in that these farmers are filing petitions constantly against the redistribution of their holdings, and the state has to address these petitions in some kind of way. It's hard for me to know exactly what happens there because those documents are still sealed uh, in the archives. They're sealed for 100 years. But I was able to look at newspaper articles that talked about different counties that were upset with how Raymond-Vaumont had been carried out in their area. And you hear all kinds of really interesting stories. So, for instance, um, you know, one woman is quite old and she used to have an orchard. And after the redistribution, she ends up with arable land. And as she points out, you know, she's too, she can't farm arable land. She's old, whereas the orchard was fairly easy for her to maintain. Um, or you might hear a story about um, there was one case in particular in which somebody who had been gifted a piece of land from um, a deceased loved one and had a very sentimental attachment to this piece of land um, they had lost that in exchange for something else. So there were all kinds of, of, um, of, <laughs> you know, angry, angry landholders at the end of these processes. Uh, but I, I went down the rabbit hole a little bit on the, you asked more broadly about what the state was doing. So that was one aspect of what they were doing. They were also offering subsidies on, um, chemical inputs, fuel, the kinds of things that are offered to farmers in America. Uh, Farmers were also um, given opportunities for better training. So they could go to two years of uh, agronomy school, for instance. Uh, The state also introduced a measure that would provide an earlier retirement for older farmers who were willing to sell their land to younger farmers, as it was assumed that the younger generation would be more modern and more open to farming with uh, with mechanical implements and chemicals. There was also an agricultural bank um, that uh, was actually established in the 19th century, but as part of this modernization process, uh, was mandated to provide very favorable, low-interest, long-term loans to farmers who were... Um, Hoping to modernize by the acquisition of a tractor or a combine thresher, or something like that, or by growing the size of their farm. So there were all kinds of things going on. In the book, I end up focusing more on these land reform uh, efforts, but uh, you could certainly write an entire book that was just about um, this retirement um, uh, program, for instance. There's tons of material about it in the archives.
1: Well, it seems like there's there's a lot of different there, – so there's a whole set of like institutional sort of support and apparatus and sort of levers that the French government is going to use. And, and I want to come back to them and how they sort of fit together and how they seem to be um, – they, they almost seem to have to go as a package that like a tractor doesn't do you any good unless you have redistributed the land – redistributing the land does no good or not as much unless you have tractors and fertilizers. Uh, but, but I think it was interesting to look at some of the stories that you highlighted uh, just now, as well as in the book, because they seem to really capture, I think how this work situates itself, both in the sort of historiography of France, but also in, in um, the historiography of environmental history and ideas of, of modernization. And I'm thinking of um, say, for example, James Scott, or, or you you mentioned William Cronin in the book as well, and the ways that um, this whole modernization project really was premised—you know—had a bunch of unspoken premises, and and one might be that labor is just a commodity, and so if labor is just a commodity and it's all uniform, then it really makes sense to just kind of swap land around, and people can just apply labor to this land as abstract economic inputs, but as you're point with the the older uh woman farmer the with the uh, orchard shows you know labor is not ex- exactly a, a commodity and then a second way that it does that is how um you you point out you know that these people had deep sort of emotional cultural ties to particular parcels of land and this project of land restri- redistribution just didn't didn't seem to care very much for that and a final example that you mentioned in the book is is of some farmers who were sort of uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak, who had been, you know, consolidating their land, had been going in the direction of of more high capital inputs and chemicals and things like that, and they can lose out on this process too. Is that does that does that sort of pull together the the different strains of discontent that we see here, at least initially?
0: Yeah, I think you summarize all of that really well. Um, absolutely, all of these initiatives that the government is pursuing have to come together; otherwise, things aren't going to work. So that, for instance, you know, buying a bunch of chemical inputs isn't going to be economically rational for you if you aren't producing at a scale large enough that you are taking in enough capital to pay for that. Right? Same thing for antibiotics, for instance, if you are raising livestock. Um, And then with respect to the last thing that you said, I mean, I think that was really one of the funniest things that I read in the archives that these, you know, most of the time I was reading these sob stories about people who had lost land that meant something to them or had been forced out of farming altogether because they didn't meet certain requirements that the state had mandated um, in order for them to take up farming. Um, And then, you know, I come across these stories about these farmers who had actually done everything they were supposed to do. And we're still losing parcels through this redistribution process. So, I mean, I feel less bad for those guys than I do for these other farmers. But it really does give you a sense of just how um, bureaucratic and intractable these processes were once they had been set in place. So that it doesn't really make a lot of rational sense to take land away from these farmers who had been doing everything that they were supposed to do, but that's simply how the logic of this process operated. I mean, not to say that it made a lot of rational sense to take land away from other people, um, but from a very cold, rational, capitalist point of view, um, it seems to make less sense to take the land away from these guys.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a rationality to it, but, but it's, it's very much a contested rationality. Can you, can you maybe give us um, a version of how this plays out that that would fit the the ways that people spoke about it when when they endorsed this because because to some extent this is this whole program is successful and effective
0: Mm -hmm. right it it works fantastically well by the 1970s france is the world's second largest exporter of agricultural goods and if you talk to trade negotiators today The EU and the United States are the two villains because when it comes to negotiating agricultural subsidies, neither of those two parties is ever willing to back down. And with respect to the EU, France is really the largest shareholder there in terms of agricultural policy. And so, yeah, I mean, France went from being this backward um, agricultural sector that was hiding behind tariff walls to becoming one of the most powerful international forces in agricultural markets. So it, it works on this national scale. What I tried to capture in the book is what that means for people at the local level, at the individual level, since many people lost out through this process. And I think I've completely lost track of the question you asked me up
1: front. <laughs> Well, I just I wanted to I wanted to get to the point that that as you just made that um, it, it is important to recognize that at a certain level, this absolutely did sort of accomplish the ideological or policy goals of the French government in the postwar period, that is to make France into an agricultural exporter. What was the term they used? Uh, the green gas. It was the sort of way to to sort of sort of, you know, come up with this export product that that only they could do. And that would earn them, uh, you know, foreign income, I guess. Now, uh, now I was also thinking about sort of in reading the book and and considering the the trajectory of this, I was considering kind of uh, inflection points or, you know, moments of change Uh, and and the change in sort of French domestic politics in the late 1950s uh, seems an important point. Could you maybe tie together the the developments in French domestic politics and, and how this related to industrial farming?
0: Right. So 1958 is a is a big moment in French 20th century history because it's when the government switches. You go from the Fourth Republic to the Fifth Republic. Charles de Gaulle becomes president in 1958 as part of this transition. And really this transition from one government to the next is tied to the Algerian War of Independence. And it ends up having serious repercussions for what's going on with agriculture. Under the new fifth Republican model, the president has a lot more executive authority, for instance. And once de Gaulle takes over the negotiations for European integration and the treaty that establishes European integration had been signed in 1957, so de Gaulle takes over in 1958 those negotiations ramp up and the fight to get as much for French farmers as possible is really ramped up. And um, and so in that respect, 58 it's important domestically, but I would argue that it's probably more important in terms of agricultural policy at the European level. This is when the common agricultural policy is really being hashed out. And what happens is You get a compromise between France and Germany, who in some ways were the most important members up front of the Union, simply because one of the goals of European integration was to get rid of the hostility between the French and the Germans. And so no European integration project was going to work if these two countries didn't come to the table together. And so what happens is France gets all kinds of dispensations for its agricultural sector, and in exchange, the Germans get dispensations for industry. And and as I argue in the book, really what France is able to accomplish with its agricultural sector – would have been impossible without this European integration. France does become the second largest exporter of goods in the world by the 1970s, but the vast majority of its exports actually stay within Europe. They're going to European neighbors as opposed to um, the United States or Canada or South Asia, for instance. Um, So that's why I would argue that 58 is so important.
1: And so in, in sort of purely, uh, sort of like legal or administrative terms, what it means is that France is able to export to consumers and other European countries largely without restriction. Is that, is that pretty much it?
0: That's right. Yeah. It's an entirely open market. There were, uh, there was a timeline set up so that it wasn't like overnight all tariffs were dropped, but tariffs were dropped progressively, uh, over the course of the early mid 1960s. And Exactly. So there were no restrictions on exportation within the European market. And the French, because they had managed to get a subsidy structure that was going to work in their favor through European integration, they're actually bankrolling the production and export of these French goods with European money.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's a component of, of the argument that I, I did not quite understand in the book. Okay, that's terrific. And that actually brings a lot into focus. Okay, so, so part of this then is that France has advantageous access to markets, but it also gets a stream of funding to subsidize these developments for farmers. And so when we say, you, you said earlier that their goal uh, in this treaty was to get uh, as much as possible for French farmers. And that's, that's sort of like a, like a two sided thing. One is the market and the other is to make sure that you're getting them high subsidies so that they can afford to do things like mechanize, um, you know, go really capital intensive with uh, fertilizer and pesticide and things like that.
0: Precisely. Yes. And so there are massive subsidies. I don't have numbers off the top of my head. I should have looked these up, but if anybody's interested, this stuff is readily available on Google. Um, You know, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say something like 80% of the European Union budget until very recently was devoted to agricultural subsidies. And the vast majority of that chunk of money was going to French farmers. And people who write about European politics have spilled a lot of ink on this. The common agricultural policy is um, very unpopular in most parts of Europe. Um, The French keep fighting to hang on to it. It became fantastically expensive for the European Union, um, and many, many efforts have been made since the middle of the 1990s, even the middle of the 1980s, really, to curb it um, and to spend less money. They've had a little bit of success, but um, overall the common agricultural policy is still uh, a very, very expensive part of European integration.
1: It seems like a fascinating um Sort of intersection of, I guess, neoliberal politics and sort of national interest as well. So maybe maybe we can come back to that uh, toward the end. Um, I had another another couple of questions about about this, and then and we'll move into some of the problems that farmers face by the time we get into the nineteen you know later fifties and sixties. But is is wheat still is it still mostly grain that is like the kind of main export? good here, or are we seeing some broader, uh, development of other, of other products as export products?
0: So in terms of volume, grain, uh, was and remains the largest export product for the, for the French. Um, it's followed by meat and dairy. And then the third category here is alcohol. So wine and, um, and liquor in terms of, of, uh, of your, you know, Euro value attached to these goods, then your higher end luxury products are certainly doing more work than the wheat. So it's, it's a little bit hard to pull those things apart. I think that the knee jerk assumption on the part of most people who read that France is such a huge exporter of goods, assume that that is fine cheese and champagne, but wheat and um, other types of grain really still are the backbone of the french agricultural economy
1: um and most of the exports are going to other european nations do you think it's uh useful or necessary to consider french agriculture at this moment in a in a more global perspective i mean we've already touched on the united states but um you know our our sort of economic relationships or political relationships with say former french uh colonies uh do they play a vital role in this
0: Yeah, and I wish that I had, you know, no book is ever going to be long enough (laughs) to talk about everything that you want to talk about. But um, absolutely, what's going on between France and its colonies slash former colonies in this post-war period is really important and really quite fascinating in terms of agricultural policy. So on the one hand, France is negotiating its trade relationships with these colonial or post-colonial holdings through the European Union. So the European Union has one kind of set policy for how to deal with trade and and colonies under the Lomé Convention. Um, but then the French are also, you know, they have different relationships with different colonies. For instance, Algeria isn't lost until 1962 and Algeria was an area where a lot of the modern techniques that other farmers take up in France are first developed largely because French sellers are able to go to Algeria by massive amounts of land, um, and then apply these new rational, uh, farming techniques without anybody really getting in the way or without having, um, the same kinds of, of, um, of landholding limitations that you would experience in in the metropole. So, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, what's going on with the colonies is really interesting. I just wasn't able to get to it. Although I will uh, take this opportunity to uh, to um, you know do a quick marketing blurb for a book that is going to come out soon by um, a woman, an historian at UC Santa Cruz named Miriam Hala Davis, and she's actually writing a similar book to the one that I wrote, but it's grounded in Algeria. And so for those of you who are interested in what's happening there, her book is going to be pretty great.
1: Oh, great. Well, maybe she'll, maybe she'll join us on here for, yeah. uh, for an interview. These, these would make a great pair. Okay. So let's, let's get back to French farmers. Um, how well, how did they handle this this sort of reorganization of land and this really breakneck modernization of French agriculture. Does this work for them on a sort of individual or or firm Mm -hmm. level?
0: Well, you know, it's a mixed bag. Some farmers do very well by this. Uh, I read interviews with farmers who, in fact, were really happy to cease being landowners and to instead become contract farmers because it took a lot of stress out of the job for them. Um, But of course, there were lots of other farmers who were really unhappy with this new system of of landholding and all of these pressures to farm at, um, at a much larger scale. So it's impossible really to generalize. the level of the French farmer, what I will say is that my book certainly skews in the direction of looking at those farmers who were unhappy. And that's largely because of the source material that I ended up using in the book. Um, And maybe I I know we're going to talk about this, maybe I'll say something very quickly about that now. But that um, early on in my research process, I found a pretty amazing collection of letters Written by farmers to various administrators um, in the state, from the local level all the way up to the president himself, complaining about various land redistributions that had happened in their in their respective counties and these letters were absolutely amazing in that we rarely have access to the voices of farmers who are typically much too busy to sit down and keep a diary or to reflect on their day. And so these letters were a window into the kind of human damage that was happening as a result of this modernization process. And so I really use those letters to build the book. And what that means is that I don't really capture the experience of those farmers who were perfectly happy with how things turned out, although I'm sure there there were many of them.
1: And so, when when these farmers do express their discontent, what are their main uh, lines of of critique? And we we've seen some of the sort of broader critiques earlier, but you know, once the process is really going, are our farmers making? You know, do, do they seem to be making a lot more money?
0: Um, again, it really depends on the farmer. So. If you're already doing pretty well and you scale up and you're exporting wheat, which is subsidized very nicely by the European Union, you're probably doing pretty well. You're taking a vacation. You have a nice house. You have a car. Your wife probably doesn't have to work on the side. Um, But that's fairly rare. Uh, Most farms still have a secondary stream of income through the second half of the 20th century um, and then certain sectors within within farming tend to tend to do much worse. So for instance, poultry farmers in the 1960s get really angry when they realize that the promises of European integration aren't really, um, coming through for them. And they begin protesting all over the country. Uh, same thing for pork producers. Um, and so it, it, you know, it's, it varies by sector. It varies by region. Um, it's hard to make a blanket statement about that.
1: One thing you do, you do discuss it uh, with several examples in the book is the case of, is the problem of debt, basically, that you get a, quite a few of them who, you know, maybe we're doing okay, uh, before they, they get some, you know, they go through the land redistribution, they, they get a more consolidated plot. They then have to borrow a ton of money to sort of mechanize, uh, they have to sort of borrow money for capital inputs. And they find that, that, you know, they're sort of handling more money overall. They're, they're moving a lot of product, but they're not actually making any money or not making any more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very common experience. And as well-documented in the popular press um people writing these letters talk about that as well uh and that's a fairly universal experience i would say across um you know attempts in the united states for instance to get farmers to modernize or canada um other countries in western europe but the 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 debt problem is um it's hard to say universal. Uh, You're always thinking about exceptions in your head. But um, I teach a a comparative agricultural history class um, at Wash U. And we, we talk about Mexico in the 20th century. We talk about the United States. We talk about India. And in all of those places, debt is a real problem for farmers who are being asked to modernize.
1: Yeah, it's it's the sort of the the trap of, of modern agriculture. Uh, another effect that you discuss is is the depopulation of the countryside and the, the number of people leaving French sort of rural districts and farms and heading into cities uh, is really quite staggering. And we're on the order of 10s of 1000s of people per year, if not more at certain points.
0: Yeah, and this is a process that begins in the late 19th century, um, or I should say it has uh, waves of intensity. So there's a wave of intensity in the late 19th century. There's another one at um, at the end of the Second World War that really persists into the late 1970s. And the French begin calling it the rural exodus. That's how it's referred to in the press. And there's a lot of anxiety about this. And I'm Canadian, so I found this extra interesting just given that my country is very sparsely populated and we tend to celebrate those parts of it that are void of humans. For the French, having any part of the country free of human habitation produces serious anxiety, and I think that what that's about is that the country has been settled and, you know, quote unquote, civilized for several thousand years at this point, that for any of those places to to become uninhabited, that's equated with those places becoming uncivilized. And so there's a real effort on the part of the government. and And this really ends up being somewhat schizophrenic to keep people in rural areas, a critical mass, at least. Um, and they don't really succeed. There are various efforts like um, creating regional parks, for instance. And the idea here was that if you had enough regional parks spread out around the country, you could have uh, farmers offer you know, lodging or horseback riding or other kinds of activities to Urban visitors, and that would allow the farm to sustain more members of the household. For instance, that might mean that your kids don't immediately leave and move to the city because they could take up that kind of side work. Um, Where was I going with this? Right. So so many are are,
1: well. So there's a lot of cross pressures in in the countryside at this point. And at one point, do we begin to see uh, kind of more focused? Uh, political or more focused discontent that is expressed through political channels. Mm-hmm. Are we are we seeing that in the late 1950s, or or is there a bit of a delay on that?
0: No, I mean we see that already in the early 1950s. So French farmers mm. begin protesting quite seriously already in 1952, 1953, and they don't ever really stop. But there are certainly spikes in activity, and they're protesting for different reasons at different moments here. In the early 1950s, they're protesting because the state isn't doing enough to increase their standard of living. And so when people begin moving from the countryside to the cities, on balance, their standard of living increases. They make more money. They live in a more comfortable place. Apartment or house, and those farmers who are staying behind to farm begin noticing this this difference, and so they're protesting the government for what they call parity. They want parity with urban standards of living, and that's largely the cause for protests through the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, the protests begin to shift in that the French state did go ahead and do something. To try and fix this, this parity problem, which namely was European integration and the capture of these foreign markets. But then farmers start protesting because they aren't doing well by the agreements that the French had made. Um, and so the EU and the common agricultural policy become a target for French protest rather than simply just the French state.
1: And so... Um, so we'll, we'll come then to sort of the, the broader spectrum of kind of resistance to this. But, but I want to highlight here, there, there was a passage in the book, I was just looking for and I, I couldn't find it. But there's a passage in the book where I think you lay it out extremely well. And you point out that this is a moment at which it, it begins to really make sense to say that sort of urban France has overtaken rural France in kind of political and economic power and was able to basically reshape uh, the French countryside to meet its interests. And you see it so concretely in like rising incomes in cities, which go up much faster than incomes in, in say the rural areas. All right. So can we talk then about the broader spectrum of resistance to, uh, modernization and, and especially how there's this older strain of resistance to modern agriculture that has its roots in, in the far right, in sort of far right political ideas.
0: Right. Yes. This is the entire other half of the book that we haven't talked about yet. I'm just remembering. Um, right. So what I've done is I've written the book so that there are two stories being told in tandem. On the one hand, there's the story of modernization and industrialization. And then on the other hand, there's this story of alternative forms of farming that spring up in response to In response to modern agriculture. And I start this story in the 1930s, 1940s with a group of French men, and they, as far as I can tell, were all men who um, were interested in eugenics, were possibly associated with the fascist regime that was in charge of France under the German occupation many of whom were deeply Catholic. Um, and and they're the ones that really are first to conceive of what later becomes organic agriculture in France. And what I think is really interesting about this story is that, of course, in 2018, organic food and farming is largely associated with the left, but it really does have its roots in the right. And that's not just true in France, it's also true in Germany and in Great Britain where organic farming is getting started around the same time.
1: And so uh, in the book, you, you lay out, I thought, three really interesting characters. Uh, one is the uh, British soil scientist, uh, Albert Howard, who does a lot of work in India. A second one is Robert McCarrison, a physician who I believe also does most of his experiments in India. And then Rudolf Steiner, who in the 1920s helps develop biodynamic agriculture. Could you Could you maybe touch on each of these three and then show us how they sort of how we how we see them sort of develop uh, in in France to give us these roots on the far right, and then we'll then we'll consider this fascinating reversal. I, I believe you said you said it, the uh, organic agriculture becomes a kind of, I guess, like sort of a mainstream proposition from the far right via the far left, which is just a, a fascinating turn of events. So, if you, so if you want to give us, give us some of the sort of background on these people and like what organic kind of means to them, and then we'll, we'll see how it transforms.
0: Right. Okay. So, um, I'll maybe start with Steiner. So Steiner is perhaps most famous for, um, his thoughts about education. So he was, a, a German. He, um, founded a philosophy called anthrop, uh, anthroposophy. I'm saying that wrong. Anthroposophy, um, And he, um, began the Waldorf school system and he was a bit of a spiritual Jack of all trades, I suppose. And he was fairly well connected throughout Germany and some farmers in Silesia. So in Northwestern Germany were worried about increased incidences of disease in their livestock And they were beginning to associate that with higher degrees of concentration in livestock rearing, and then also early forms of uh, antibiotics. And so they invited Steiner to give a series of talks about how they might um, develop a new system of farming that wouldn't lead to disease. And so these talks happen um, at the home of of a German count and... And nothing's written down. We know about the content of the talks because the people who were in attendance ended up writing about it later. And this really becomes the, uh, you know, the, the, the origin myth of biodynamic and organic farming across, across the, across all of Western Europe, really. Um, And, and What's maybe perhaps most interesting about this, this early form of organic and biodynamic farming is that it, it's really not based in any kind of science. Um, and I say that lightly, knowing that science is a loaded term. Um, but for instance, Steiner suggests that farmers um, take manure, fertilizer, and then Pack it into hollowed out horns um, of bulls, bury those horns in the ground at a particular moon phase, dig them back up again at a particular moon phase, and that that fertilizer is the fertilizer that you should use for your fields because it has been imbued with a particular vitalist life force that is going to um, be healthier for your plants and animals. So that's really where...
1: So when you say spiritualist, you're not you're not kidding. I mean, this is no. This is this sounds very outside what we would consider mm-hmm. kind of modern uh, agronomic discourse. I and mean, this sounds right. This is very alternative.
0: Very alternative. Yes, you might even call it magic, right? I mean, they're talking about the um, the rays of the universe imbuing the soil um, with these new properties, and. So that's the German side. The, the British side is more, quote unquote, scientific. And so you've got Howard and um, McCarrison, both working in India, both conducting experiments and both coming to the same conclusion that the healthiest farm is a closed system so that you have livestock and you have arable land and you use the manure that comes from your livestock in order to fertilize that arable land. And then you use whatever leftovers you have on the arable land's produce to feed your livestock. And so it's um, this virtuous circle that um, remains you know, closed. And that's the system that they advocate in England. The French pick up the German teachings through the two provinces of eastern France that are somewhat German speaking, depending on who's in charge, uh, when, so Alsace and Lorraine, which are two parts of France that are sometimes parts of Germany, depending on, um, which war we're talking about. And so ideas begin to filter in through there. Some of the ideas that Steiner presented at that conference are translated into French. Um, and so those books begin to circulate. Uh, and, and then when the French pick it up, it, the the well it moves in two directions. So the biodynamic Steiner uh, heritage persists for a while. And there are of course still biodynamic farms in France, but it's really the organic, more British version of things that ha- that has longevity. And and the first people who are really interested in this stuff in France are not necessarily farmers. So we've got doctors and nutritionists, um, dentists, uh, you know, scientific agronomists who have teaching positions uh, and aren't really practicing farmers. These are the ones who become interested in these ideas, and they begin holding local workshops, regional workshops, um, trying to get the word out. And I would say that the the increasing incidence of disease in in livestock is really one of the big pushes for french farmers to to, to contemplate thinking about a different kind of farming um, once they see their animals dying they have a very concrete sense that that this new industrial modern type of agriculture is um, is detrimental
1: and so, and that's basically built into the model of modern agriculture that they've adopted, that if you're going to specialize more, you're going to pack animals more closely together. You're going to feed them more sort of commodified, concentrated foodstuffs and so on. So disease is just going to be part of it. And and they're pushing back on that. Now, it's interesting you pointed to to disease here, which which sort of anticipated my next question, which is to say, do these critiques of modern agriculture seem more aimed at... uh, convincing farmers to farm differently or at convincing consumers to consume differently.
0: From the beginning, it's both. So um, I talk in the book about one character in particular, Henry Charles Geoffroy, who um, you know it's not a farmer. He's interested in these ideas. He becomes part of one of the earliest uh, organic farming associations, which again doesn't really include any farmers. But more importantly, um, he begins a publication that disseminates these ideas and he founds a health food store called La Vie Claire, which is still today in 2018, um, an important health food store in France. It's actually one of the largest health food chains in the country. And so already, you know, at the very beginning, it's about reaching consumers and, um, Raoul Le Maire, who is the largest character in the book in terms of organic farming, he is a practicing farmer and and his first impulse is to figure out how to sell non-industrial bread to consumers because he thinks that industrial bread is slowly but surely killing people through through diet.
1: And so so we really do then get a kind of confluence of these factors. Um, can we can we consider what it was about organic agriculture prior to the Second World War, which really ap- appealed to the far right? What do what, what they like about it? I mean, I can see how there's a kind of anti-modernity aspect to it. Right. Like, why are they into that?
0: They're obsessed with purity. And so one of the conversations that gets going around the German occupation is you know, why were the French so easily and quickly defeated by the Germans? And one of the answers that people have to that question is that the French race had become compromised. And these farmers and doctors, agronomists, view organic farming as a means to, um, you know, create a healthy food supply that will maintain, or maybe not maintain, but, um, you know, uh, recapture the purity of the French race and make the French man and woman, and perhaps more importantly, French soldier, uh, healthier, right. In both body and mind. So it's, it's really this category of purity and they talk about it a lot. Um, the other word that they use quite often is degeneration, um, as the, as the converse of purity.
1: And, and maybe we could say that there's a sort of a half step away from that discussion of purity with the discussion of things like food safety in the, in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way to put it?
0: Yes. Although, I mean, food safety, it's interesting. Uh, you know, in the agricultural history classes that I teach, lots of books point to food scares like the Alar Apple or tainted grapes that happened in the 1970s and eighties as moments in which consumers become more aware of the food that they're eating and become more interested in organic products. But for these farmers and doctors up front, um, the food scare, food taint issue is much less prominent for them. As far as they're concerned, all industrial produced food is tainted. Whether it makes you vomit or not, it's compromising your health. It's it's killing you. It's literally killing you on some level.
1: So industrialization and, and industrial farming for them is really a, a chronic condition and exactly. not a kind of acute. Yeah.
0: That's a great way of putting um, it.
1: Yeah. It's a chronic condition. How, how does the, how does the French government relate to or handle these, these kinds of um, let's, let's say these like green shoots of resistance to industrial agriculture.
0: Well, for the longest early time- on,
1: Early right. on, I mean, before the, before the 1968 shift, which we'll come to in a moment.
0: Okay. Well, they ignore them, really. I mean, they're few and far between. They aren't really getting into anybody's way. Um, yeah. I mean, really, that's it. They're being ignored for the most part.
1: Okay. And then we start to see a real shift, uh, again, sort of French, like national politics and politics more broadly sort of uh, intrude on this story or, or sort of uh, dovetail with the story with 1968. Can you take us through the political context there and then how that can, ha- has a longer term effect on the idea of organic agriculture?
0: Right. So I'd say that the move of organic farming from Conservative neo fascist politics to a radical leftist politics happens through um, a couple of different channels. So, on the one hand, um, you've got the emergence of an environmentalist movement in I mean, it's happening before 1968, but it certainly heightens uh, in 1968 and continues through the 1970s. But that this environmentalism, which which is uh, working in tandem with an anti nuclear protest movement as well, becomes uh, associated with farming um, in a number of different ways. So, on the one hand, the environmentalists establish their own political party, the Green Party and the first person that they uh run in a presidential election is René Dumont who himself was an agronomist who had worked for the French state for several decades um and had traveled you know he'd been to Algeria he'd been to South Asia to modernize colonial farmers um and then he becomes um Uh, you know, the poster child for the very first um, green political party. So already you've got a tie there between farming and a leftist environmentalist politics. On the other hand, one of the largest areas of protest during um, the events of 68 is a place called the Larzac in the South of France. And the French government had been, Um, talking about expanding a military base in the area that would have required expropriating agricultural lands, um, you know, for the purposes of this military base, which caused local farmers to protest. And many of the youth protesters of urban France – ended up traveling to the Larzac in solidarity to protest alongside these farmers. And they did that by squatting on land that was slated for expropriation. Um, This is the story of José Bove, who is perhaps the most famous of French farmers in 2018. He went on to protest in Seattle, for instance, and became a spokesperson for anti-globalization He cuts his teeth on these Larzac protests, moves down there, squats, ends up staying and becomes a farmer, um, a milk farmer, actually, a used milk farmer. Um, So that's the second part of this story. And then I would say that the third part of how these these politics shift in the late 1960s is that um, you've got an anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist thread in these protests as well, that. Everybody was very excited about the advent of mass consumer society in the 1950s and 1960s. By the late 60s, people are beginning to wonder what it was all about. They're feeling empty. They're um, realizing that even though they might have nice apartments and appliances, they're not necessarily happier than they once were. And so that broader anti capitalist um, critique ends up filtering itself into. Um, areas of consumption and in particular food consumption so that consuming you know a a non-industrial diet is in some ways consuming a non-capitalist
1: diet and so as so many times happens in in kind of looking at uh, left politics you end up then with this interesting coalition of different forces that kind of come together uh, around organic agriculture in the late 1960s, which, which really sets up the 1970s as a as a fascinating period in French agricultural history because, it, as you pointed out a, a little while ago, that is the moment uh, by which, you know, by that time France has become a major exporter so that the sort of program of modernization is essentially complete or is complete enough. Uh, but it's also the moment that you see this, like, coalescing of a, of a really fascinating strain of resistance. How does the French government handle this?
0: So the, the government begins paying attention, I'd say in the middle of the 1960s. Uh, and you know, the government begins to notice that consumers, some consumers are willing to pay more money for what they consider to be a higher quality product. And so for instance, the French state, um, creates this thing called the red label um, primarily for chicken, but it allows farmers to sell chicken with this label at a higher price under the assumption that the chicken is produced in a higher quality environment. Um, The, the limitations for red label are actually pretty slack. So I don't know that it means too much in reality, but it um, it's emblematic of how the state is beginning to think about how it might co-opt what's going on in the organic movement in order to make its own industrial modern farming more profitable. And so that's the first example, the red label, but it continues through the late sixties and, and um, 1970s. And at one point I talk about this in the book, one of the arms of the ministry of agriculture actually requests a meeting with um, several of these, of these men who are active in the organic farming circle to see if they can talk about, Labeling And coming up with new kinds of labeling, the meeting predictably doesn't go very well. But again, it's a sign of, of how the state is thinking about this new alternative farming. And this really comes to a head in the late 1970s, when the state decides that it's going to formally recognize organic farming and build it into its agricultural legislation. And so organic farming becomes officially recognized by the state in 1980 with a new set of laws. And you have an official definition of what it is and the beginnings of state mandated. um, uh, I can only think of the French word um, state mandated requirements for what would constitute an organic product and and you can see this. So, it, you know, on the one hand, you've got these organic labels. Then, after 1980, but the French state is not only. Tur- I mean, how do I put this? They're 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 rippling this out in lots of different directions. And so, for instance, I argue in the book, and I know I only do this at the end of the book. There's a lot of room for more research here, that the resurgence in the 1980s of of um, origins labeling and the idea of terroir, the idea that a product is linked to its its place of production and uh, and, and origin, that, that that is somehow important to consumers and that you can charge more for that. Um, that's also being ramped up in the 1980s and I see that very much in parallel with this co-optation of the actual organic certification process. Um, so the French state is is looking for ways to expand niche markets so that farmers who are still protesting about their standard of living might make more money by selling higher-priced goods to consumers who are willing to pay for that sort of thing.
1: And so there's there's an interesting dynamic here, and I wonder if maybe you could tease it out a little bit. To, to what extent do you think the French government is sort of getting on board and kind of recognizing organic agriculture uh, because it has to, because organic farmers are becoming sort of more powerful or influential, or is it simply trying to kind of get ahead of what it sees might be potential problems down the road? Or is this a a case, and I I love the way that you talk about co-opting, that really what's happening here is that French agriculture is kind of diversifying a little bit and is you know, the the people at the top are simply looking for more avenues of expansion because in a kind of uh, the permanent emergency of modernity, you have to always expand or or something bad will happen.
0: Right. I think it's very much the last option here. Um, By the late 1960s, French agriculture is already experiencing serious surplus problems so that the French are producing way too much milk, way too much butter, Um, And they're having trouble selling that stuff on markets, which means that there are all kinds of problems with price fluctuations, etc. And so these these niche alternative forms of of marketing and production seem like smart alternatives um, in the sense that farmers will produce less, um, but they'll charge more for it, which should mean that their standard of living remains stable. Um, while the state simultaneously gets to try and do something about the surplus problem. Of course, the surplus problem never really gets addressed properly anyways. um, And you just end up with these new, more expensive niche items on the market.
1: And is this then the moment at which uh, sort of France broadly begins to really gain or or perhaps consolidate uh, a kind of international identity or branding as a place of unusually high quality and not as a, as a place of kind of organic or of, a, uh, you know, intensive industrial agriculture?
0: I mean, I think that reputation is much older and extends to other types of goods, right? So that French silk, for instance, in the 19th century or, um, Limoges, China, that France has always had that association with quality. There's a reason that if you were a very wealthy woman living in New York, you had your dresses made in Paris, right? Um, and so I think in some ways it's 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 more about the French state figuring out how to successfully map those associations onto French food. And again, that's not necessarily new. Um, French gastronomy was already very important in the 19th century. Julia Child was doing her thing long before French organic certification began. Um, so there was always an association of quality and and, and French food, um, but it wasn't necessarily uh, a real association, right? I mean, food in France after the 1950s was largely industrial.
1: And so, so we sort of come then to... The, I guess the end of of the broad outline this of this whole project, and and I really I really have two two further points I'd like to have you explore for us. One, how do you how do you put all this together into a kind of single thrust? I mean, I, I see a lot of ways where this work meshes extremely well with uh, questions of kind of modernization, the relationship between sort of national level policies and individual discontent. Uh, the separation and often antagonism between urban and rural areas. Um, how would you, how would you sum this all up?
0: Right. I think for me, the driving force behind writing this book was to understand the human costs of creative destruction. So in my when I'm wearing my other hat, I'm an economic historian and I teach a lot of Joseph Schumpeter and um, you know, it it typically gets taught in terms of thinking about the amazing innovation that comes along and changes our lives. Like, uh, I don't know, the iPhone, for instance, the thing that I'm using to talk to you right now. Um, But we tend to think less about the people who lose their jobs as a result, or rather we, We accept that job loss as a necessary cost to progress. And what I really wanted to understand is what that actually looked like for those people who are losing their jobs. So on the one hand, yes, it's great that we're able to produce food at a cost that allows everybody to eat healthily, at least in theory. Right. People make their own choices, but at least in theory, they can eat healthily um, at a fairly reasonable cost. And that in some ways is a great boon um, that we experienced in the 20th century. But in other ways, it's also a, a pretty serious tragedy for those people who are forced to produce that food for us. Um, and so that was really what was driving this for me, which is, I think, why I was so interested in these letters in which the farmers get to tell their own stories about what this process of modernization is is doing to them. And then I think the other maybe less emotional interest for me is, um, is, is the idea that we tend to associate capitalist progress with an urban setting, with industry, with service. And really there is no, uh, industrial progress without an agricultural sector that can feed its people. Right. Um, And so I wanted to bring farming back into the discussion about what capitalism looks like in the 20th century and how it's working.
1: And is that, uh, can I ask, did you start with these questions and then you found this remarkable um, collection of, of letters or was it the other way around?
0: It was the other way around. Um, I mean, these were questions that I had been thinking about in graduate school. Um, My major examination field was the history of capitalism. And, And then when I found these letters, that's when those questions started to come together. Although you know, I, in all honesty, I don't know that I actually knew what this project was about until I was maybe eighty percent of the way through writing it, uh, which is, I'm guessing, a fairly common experience for for authors. It's not until you see all of the threads come together that you're able to to stand back and and have an understanding of what the bigger picture looks like.
1: Absolutely, and and hey, it, you know, if you knew everything at the beginning, then you know what what's the research for, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Can I, can I ask uh, what you have coming up next? And can I preface this by saying that I saw your paper at um, ASEH in Riverside in which you discussed, um, was it uh, Kondratief? No. Uh, Kuznets. No,
0: Kuznets. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Which you gave a terrific paper on the sort of intellectual history of him and, and his own kind of questioning of the role of modernization and planning in, in uh, economics. Can, can you maybe tell us like, where you're going next?
0: Yes. So I am currently working on the history of economic growth as a category that takes on an outsized importance in the 20th century. And the paper that you saw me deliver at the Environmental History Conference was about one American economist, Simon Kuznets, who was very important in the history of um, economic growth theory and in coming up with a system of national accounting, which is ultimately what undergirds thinking about economic growth in the 20th century. So he's one part of the story. And um, the story is ultimately going to focus more on this French economist named Francois Perroux, who in some ways is the the French analog of, of Simon Kuznets. He's very involved both in academic economics as well as um, government planning. He holds different positions in different governments at different times over his career. And, what I find interesting about both of these characters, Kuznets and Peru, is that is that they, on the one hand, are absolutely instrumental in getting these new ideas about national accounting and economic growth off the ground and, and running so that we are... Taking national income uh, statistics into account on a quarterly basis, um, I mean really these things become absolutely essential to politics and economic planning to the point where you know presidential candidates are promising certain percentages of economic growth while they're campaigning for instance um, so these two men are, are are absolutely essential in that development, but on by the same token, they both have serious reservations about this system that they helped bring into being. And so both of them are deeply uncomfortable with how quantitative economics and economic thinking becomes in the 20th century. They both lament um, the fact that economists no longer consult historians or sociologists or anthropologists when thinking about um, how best to understand the market. Uh, And so they're, they're, You know, on the one hand, they're absolutely central to the story. And then on the other hand, they're these weird, um, shadowy outlier figures. And so they're, they're interesting foils for thinking about how economic growth becomes such an incredibly important category for us in the 20th century.